This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Gabe Wander. So Gabe is a retired Army major, and he is a combat veteran. He enlisted in the Army at the age of 17, and he eventually became an officer and also a nurse anesthesiologist with the JSOC unit out of Fort Bragg. JSOC stands for Joint Special Operations Command, and that unit uh, basically is the only Tier 1 unit in the U.S. military that provides direct medical support to JSOC Special Missions units. They do that they by getting deployed. They're overseas with these guys. It's pretty incredible, but I do actually want to read this short section from his bio on his website because I think it'll give you a little bit of a better idea as to why we're talking to him. While training for one of his deployments, he had a near-fatal parachute injury that required several emergency surgeries and remained hospitalized for nearly a month. After a long recovery and just before his next deployment, his wife became pregnant with their first son. The nightly harrowing missions combined with the lingering effects of his injuries made him acutely aware of his own mortality. For the first time, he feared not coming home, and so he began to scribble what he'd pass on to his unborn son should he never get to see him. These weren't just life lessons, but tangible actions he could incorporate into his everyday life to both mold him into a good man and help him flourish. He added to the list with every deployment and pregnancy until safely retired from the Army. As of today, he has three sons, the eldest of whom is nine years old, so he gathered his ideas of raising men and assembled them so that they could have a daily impact on young men. And what that ended up turning into guys is this book that I'm holding right here in my hand. If you're not watching this on YouTube, you should be, but this is a book that all of you should have. If you have sons, it's called maintain eye contact while shaking hands, a message to boys on being a man guys. There is a dearth of content like this for young boys. Right, you know, people like to talk about the stuff that Jocko Willink has put out there with the Warrior Kid stuff. That stuff is absolutely fantastic, but there's not a whole lot of stuff that's in that vein. This is in that vein. You're going to get those those life lessons that aren't being taught in their schools, certainly not in their schools, that aren't maybe what they're getting from being coached on this team. They're maybe not getting it from the church, but these are the lessons that little boys need, especially when they're living in a culture that doesn't know how and doesn't even try to initiate them into manhood. So there are a lot of great things that we talk about. Now, the first half hour or so, we talk about his past and kind of some of the things that he's done. We talk about his military career. We talk about an injury, which you know almost ended his entire military career, all those different things. And then on the back half, we really dig into the book. But also, guys, I want you to hang out for, for later on in the in the segment or uh, one of the later segments because this is a guy who grew up uh, he was born into a Jewish family but then you know he he was a part of a Christian missionary family also whenever he was uh, growing up as a kid and that's kind of affected how he's raising his family and doing different things like that so we got to talk a little bit about that I asked him you know now that he's uh, you know operating as a Jewish man in a Jewish family and those types of things what does he think about Jesus you know how does he kind of square that circle with you know he's either a liar lunatic or Lord that type of thing so we got into all that content. So that was an interesting part of the conversation as well. But guys, really, really valuable information, especially if you have sons. Even if you don't have sons, this is good stuff for later. But without further ado, let's get into it. Gabe Wander, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Hey, we're going to get into a lot of great subject matters today, but I always have to do some sort of a little intro thing. That's for the world of podcasting. You got to make sure you introduce the guy to your audience. But according to your bio, you were born Jewish, but you grew up as a Christian missionary. And so I don't know if I know another human being that kind of has that in their resume, but it's also said that you lived with your parents and seven siblings in 30 different countries. Okay. So Jewish to Christian, seven siblings, 30 different countries. Talk to me about all that. So talk to me about the early part of your life. How did all that work out? 
Yeah, so early part. So back before um, I was a twinkle in my father's eye, parents met in the 60s. Um, they were, you know, uh, probably 18, 19 years old around then, both Jewish. My mother, um, Sephardic Jew from the Spain-Morocco side, my father, Ashkenazi, on the uh, Eastern European side. Anyways, they, uh, for their own reasons, were in Jerusalem. They met each other there in a post office, got married. Um, came back to the U.S. and they were involved in the Christian um, Jesus movement around that time. They moved overseas, had eight kids, one after another. I'm the third of eight, and we traveled all over the world. I was uh, I was born in Greece, just so happened to be there. Older brother in Iran, another one in Cyprus, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so traveling all over the world and being around all these different cultures and such, that really opened my eyes to just all kinds of religions and such. Even though we were born Christian, raised Christian, didn't know we were Jewish until we came back to the States when I was 12. And that's where my grandparents at one point they were like, hey, you know, this is your heritage. This is your religion. And um, from that point, several of us kind of went different directions. Um, several of us, I mean, the uh, eight siblings and um kind of embraced it in different ways. Okay, it, was, so, uh, it was a joy, yeah. Yeah, so when you say you embrace it in different ways, does that, I mean, I'm kind of like t- digging into your family already sure. at this yeah, podcast, but does that mean some people kind of went more towards the Judeo side of Judeo-Christian? Were there people that kind of stayed just in the Christian side? Did people kind of deconstruct their faith altogether? What, what does that mean without getting too far into the family business? Sure, no, no, absolutely, yeah. So it's 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 quite unique. So, so um, I was, uh, I joined the army when I was 17 and I was kind of, I don't say agnostic, but I was Christian when it was time to be Christian. I had a dog tag that's a Christian, I had a dog tag that's a Jewish. It depends on where I was going, if I was, you know, or et cetera. Um, I wasn't really religious at all at that point. Um, one of my younger brothers, the one about two years younger than me, he embraced Judaism, um, kitten caboodle. Um, he went to Israel, he joined the army out there, he studied in a yeshiva and married a rabbi's daughter, and he is living the orthodox life now, just mm. great dude. Um, myself, I when I married my wife, not my current wife, uh, gosh, 12 years ago almost now, she was born and raised Jewish. And so when her and I spoke, I told her, you know, I am Jewish by heritage. I want to raise Jewish kids, but I was not raised that way. I will be learning along with my kids. And she was all for it, right? So so we raise our kids Jewish. We are a Jewish household. We're not secular. We are religious Jews. We are conservative, uh, modern Orthodox, I guess you would say. Um, we, we, uh, we don't keep a kosher house. We do kosher things. Um, and so then several of my other siblings, some are it's exactly, as you said, deconstructed. Um, some are, you know, more Christian. Some are more Christian, Judeo-Christian. They kind of just live their lives as good people. And, you know, they'll, they'll have a cre- uh, Christmas tree with uh, Hanukkah decorations as well. So it's okay. just whatever works for them. Yeah, a bit of a hodgepodge. But no, I get what you're saying. Absolutely. Like, I, I grew up in Oklahoma. And so the belt buckle, the Bible belt. And so people were, you know, Christian by dint of birth, right? Oh, I was born on this soil. So I guess I'm, you know, a Christian, that type of thing. But we'll get more into to your faith a little bit later, because it'll pertain to sure. the book that we're going to be discussing. But you did mention that you did enlist in the military at the age of 17. And you went the army route. And so I, I ask everyone that comes on the show that's a veteran this pretty much, why did you decide to serve in the military? Because some people kind of have that generational calling. Well, my great grandfather fought in this war and my grandfather fought in this war and that kind of thing. Other people kind of have a, a not so fun uh, view, but everyone did end up serving. So what's your serving story? So it all started with my grandfathers. Uh, both of my grandfathers were in on both sides. Um, the one that I spent the most time with was uh, Grandpa Howard on my dad's side. Um, I used to go into his office 
um, wood leather office and saw all of his medals and such up on the wall and the pride that it gave him when he talked about it. And so that was my first um, kind of exposure to the military. But that early exposure was fleeting because, you know, life had its way. I was living on my own at 15, living in a van, et cetera. And 17 years old, when as soon as I could join, that was basically my way of getting uh, college uh, earned and paid for. So that's why I initially joined. Um, so I enlisted at 17 as a private combat medic. Moving forward, uh, jumping ahead, um, I became a sergeant and then earned a degree and uh, as a nurse anesthesiologist and went into JSOC. We're in the only unit that provides direct medical support to JSOC and tier one units. Uh, so that's why I joined is different than why I stayed. I, you know, I, I, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, I joined as a lost teenager. I stayed because I eventually learned to love God, my country, um, and instill that sense of pride, patriotism. And I became a man. I found my Jewish faith. And uh, so that's kind of like why I stayed. So 20 years later, I exited or re retired from the army. A little worse for the wear, a little bit of injuries, but great community. They were more like family than, um, than, than coworkers. So. Gotcha. Well, uh, I know that a lot of people that listen to this podcast are veterans or a lot of people that are still in the military, some people that are even deployed right now. So we're so glad that you guys are listening to this. But not everybody, including our international audience, really understands kind of the U.S. military, how the Army works. They don't know what JSOC stands for. It's a you know, sure. Joint Special Operations Command, and they don't know about Fort Bragg. They don't know any about any of that stuff. But it's fairly unique that as an officer, you became a, ner a nurse anesthesiologist, and you did that for a JSOC. SOC unit. So could you get a little bit more into the specifics about what is JSOC, kind of what were you doing there at Fort Bragg and kind of how did that apply to maybe what was going on over there with the, you know, war on terror and different things? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, once I finished school, I wanted to be in JSOC or I wanted to be in JSOC. I knew a little bit about it, just enough that at the time Wikipedia had a little small page, right? So um, proximity, right? Proximity principle. I wanted to be there and J uh, Fort Bragg was the place to go. I had no other reason to be in Fort Bragg and it's uh, kind of the armpit depending on who you talk to, but it's a great place for work. So anyways, I went there um, and very soon thereafter was invited to um, uh, apply or invited to interview. Um, so without getting into too much specifics, because I shouldn't, um, but any, any time any of the tier one units in the U.S. military goes out and does something um, from the Army tier one to the Navy special ops to the um, Air Force and um, other uh, other groups as well that are maybe paramilitary. Um, there is always a contingent of us there in case something bad happens, and because something bad as in um, some that someone needs surgery. Essentially, bringing surgery to the as far forward as uh, we can. So sometimes we will be on the X or on the target with the um, with the shooters. Sometimes we'll be hovering or circling in the air. Sometimes we'll be pushed back. Um, farther back into a safe area. So it just all depends on what the mission is. Um, real small teams, right? So you learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I know that's a cliche saying these days, but um, imagine doing, you know, imagine if you were, if you would, an operating room where you have all of your anesthesia equipment or the surgeon has all of his surgery equipment along with a tech, maybe two techs and some nurses and anesthesia. We have all these help because we have blood and central lines to put in and stuff, right? So take all that away and I need to pack everything that I need in, on my back. Um, same with the surgeon, same with the couple other people that are there and what they do. So um, 
you learn a lot really quickly. You have to be good at what you do. You have to be able to meld the tactical portion of it because you're walking, you're shooting. We're not shooters. We're not kicking down the doors, but we are, I feel grateful. And this, I think this is the um, sentiment that a lot of us had is that the guys who are actually doing the work, doing the mission and kicking down the doors, they could maybe feel a little bit better about what they were doing, not having to worry about if they get shot or if something bad happens that they'll be taken care of. And so we were there all, with them all the time. We did a lot of training with them um, on the tactical side and everything as well. So we could, you know, as you would say, know the secret handshake. We wouldn't be a liability there and we could actually do our job, you know, so. Yeah, I know you can't get into a lot of the specifics, you know, just because we don't want to give away trades, tradecraft and all those different things. But right. what are some of the most common misperceptions that you see about special operators? Because especially now with, uh, you know, SEALs and Rangers and SF guys, you know, writing books and doing interviews, you know, not kind of going from quiet operator to a little bit more out in the open. You have a different type of kid that's maybe wanting to go for maybe different reasons. Uh, they don't necessarily want to stay quiet. Maybe they do want kind of the to be the SEAL that always pounds their chest or to be the, the guy that did the special jump and all those types of things. But there are a lot of misconceptions about that community because I know a lot of guys in that community. But from your perspective, what are some of those? Um, I would say some of the misconceptions is, I mean, I had them when I was young, um, you know, coming in was that these are all superheroes in essence. Didn't feel pain, right? You saw the Rambo movies when you were a kid, right? So didn't feel pain. Um, you could just run until someone tells you to stop, you know, and, and uh, but... I think not everybody ha is a physical specimen. We try as much as we can to not show pain, obviously, um, but it's there. I mean, man, things hurt, you know, halfway through my career, things were really hurting based on a couple injuries and stuff. But um, I think it's just the perseverance and the teamwork that kind of helps everybody get along. So, I mean, Everybody is not, everybody is not, uh, you know, Captain America, six foot tall, you know, and uh, everybody has issues and injuries, especially the guys, once they get there to some of those units, they've been in for a while. They've done a lot of stuff already. Things hurt. And, uh, you know, you just, you just kind of got to push through things. So I think that's just, yeah. I mean, I think that was for me was that, uh, wow, these aren't superheroes. Once you're like living and stuff with, you know, living in a tent with people, everybody has their own nuances. And this guy has a breathing machine and he snores and, you know, you're like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. No, I completely understand. And that's what I, when I talk to a lot of those guys, that's usually it. You're thinking that, you know, all Navy SEALs are, you know, six foot five, 250 pound Adonises. And it's like, there are some of those guys, but then there's also, you know, guys that are five foot five. It's just, they, they don't have the ability to quit. And that's something that's needed more so in these spec ops units. Um, since you're out of the military now, but you spent a lot of time in it, I'm sure you focus on a lot of the changes or you at least keep up with some of the changes that are happening in our U S military. I had a guy that's in the air force, send me this email where they were encouraging all the airmen to put their pronouns in their email bios, you know, this focus on, you know, equity, equity when it comes to racial issues, you know, there's the stuff that even Dan Crenshaw was talking about here recently about a woman that was basically hand carried through selection, a selection process that she quit yeah, multiple times. That. Yeah. And so we haven't been able to corroborate it yet. So I don't want to spread any rumors if it's not true, but it seems like it might be true. You know, this lowering of standards so that we can have more types of people that fit a certain demographic get through as opposed to keeping the standards high so that whenever we're in warfare, we're not in that moment where a body needs to be dra dragged out of the middle of the street to, to keep someone alive. We don't want somebody that was like, Oh, I never did that because I didn't have to. So what are your thoughts around a lot of the issues and a lot of things that you're seeing change in terms of the military so i'll give you my thoughts from about 
four or five years ago, and then my thoughts that are just very, very recent. And they're they're the same, but they kind of go along with a little anecdote from each, right? So about four or five years ago, I guess it was five years ago, I was deployed, and every time we're, we're deployed, and if we're working with medics from some of those units that I was uh, briefly mentioned, um, on downtime, we're always talking about, uh, hey, what do you want to do when you're done? You're going to go to med school. You want to go to anesthesia school, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So there's always guys coming up and talking and, you know, we're training them on their medic stuff, high speed guys. So right around that time, um, former president Barack Obama was in office and they started doing this uh, social experiment. Well, you may have re- remembered it if you read about it or not, but basically there was, it was the, you know, Hey, uh, transgenders are now going to be allowed to openly be in the military. And simultaneously they said, anybody who has tattoos, um, that shows above your PT clothes. So basically tattoos that show on your forearm and above your neck. Um, we're not going to kick you out, but we are going to stop you from advancing. So no more schools, no more promotions, et cetera. Essentially the warrior class. There was, you know, they were, those are 90% of the people who are going to have tattoos above their uh, uh, shirt and below their sleeves. Um, and so I, I brought up the, you know, uh, helping you know, or helping people with like packets to go on to school because there was a couple guys, one in particular, and we're still, you know, friends on social media and stuff. And um, he was three quarters of the way through his packet. And then because of this, he couldn't high speed guy. And he's his career was just kind of stopped, at least that portion of what he wanted to do. So that was uh, I think that lasted for a year or so. I think they, they moved some stuff around. Um, so that was very unfortunate. Um, fast forward. This is more of a funny anecdote, but so um, the army has has this big rollout of their they're, they're making their physical fitness test to be a gender neutral test, right? This right. huge rollout, years and years of how great this is going to be. Well, last year the sergeant major of the army he announced that they hey we have to go back to a gender specific test because um, what was it forty four percent of women were failing the test compared to seven percent of men. Putting it in numbers. Um, only 66 uh, females uh, scored over 500 points compared to 32,000 males. So all those females and then all the females who were failing were risk being separated, right? So um, all of a sudden they realized, I mean, they should have known, they do know, but all of a sudden they're like, okay, wait a second, boys and girls are different. We have to go back to a gender specific test, right? So we need masculine men to do the masculine things in society. Passive feminine men aren't going to stop evil. Neither is a 120-pound female going to lift a 200-pound male in kit off of the field if she needs to. It's it's just the way it is. I mean, yes, there are the outliers, and some women can just run circles around men, even me perhaps. But no, not as a whole. Um, this should not be a social experiment. The military is there to essentially win wars. Well, that was the thing I remember even just five years ago, Gabe, people would be like, okay, all this woke stuff, it's never going to get into business because markets are markets and we've got to make sure that that happens. But now it's like, if you're a large, you know, fortune 100 company, and you're not saying these woke things that you're being forced to say by all these activists, like we don't see any companies that aren't doing those things right now. You have the NFL with all their stuff they were doing around Black Lives Matter, but even specifically with the military, that was always the last bastion of hope that wokeness was never going to become this ubiquitous thing in American culture. 
but it has. And I just, I don't know what the negatives are going to be for that moving forward. We really have no idea. I mean, just think before we went into Desert Storm and before we went into Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, we were preparing for warfare in those types of settings and the way that we are now, our guys are very well prepared, but they're not doing things like this in China or in Russia or North Korea or in Iran or any of our enemies around the world that wants to see America fall. They're not experimenting to see if they can get more women in. They're trying to be as masculine and dominant as possible. So I'm I'm kind of getting off. I know we got a lot of stuff to get to, but maybe the last thing I wanted to talk through here in terms of military, and we're going to be giving this short shrift. I'm going to be able to ask you essentially one question about it, which is not nearly enough time to to talk about it. But I'd love to get veterans perspectives on our pullout from Afghanistan, because I've talked to a lot of people that were, you know, on the ground there as journalists, people that were on the ground there, you know, as shooters, as people that were operating outside the wire. And nobody has a good thing to say about what the joint, joint chiefs or specifically what Joe Biden, the commander in chief, decided to do around that time, how negligent it was giving up, you know, the air bases that we gave up that we didn't have to give up, uh, you know, keeping a, a small force there was never really considered for the long term. This complete ignoring the fact that we have forces in countries that people don't even understand that we have, like we have troops in Germany and Japan and all these other places where we're not actively at war. But for you as a veteran, somebody that worked with JSOC units, you maybe even lost guys in, in the wars in the, the stuff that was going on in Afghanistan. What do you think about what the United States did when we pulled out? Um, there are, there are guys smarter than me who can talk about the tactical reasons and the more political reasons of why everything was bad. I agree. Everything, everything was bad. It was a bad way to do it. Um, there's, I, I think there was, there could have been much better ways to do it. If not just stay there because things were fine, at least from my perspective, um, with the folks that we still had staying there. Um, when I found out about it and saw those pictures, um, and start re- reading articles and stuff. It was it was a very visceral feeling uh, reading about those. It was the same type of feeling that if you read an article about, um, let's say, a family or parents who abuse their child, I can get about three words into it and then I'm done. It's, it hits too close to home. And that was the feeling that I had uh, for this. Uh, hopelessness, nothing you can do about it. Um, not hopelessness to the point of, you know, my whole time over there was for not, et cetera, because I was fortunate that my time over there, I could view it as I was there to help protect our guys. And so I didn't, I didn't have to go through the personal feelings of was my time there all for not. I was there to help uh, save and protect and uh, be a, a backdrop for our guys there. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's uh, like you said, we are in all sorts of countries all across the world as peacekeepers now after being there in times of war. And I don't think Afghanistan should have been any different. Yeah, it's it's a rough thing to still consider. And the, the further we get into 2022 and into subsequent years, we're going to see a lot of the ripple effect from these decisions that were made. And, you know, these people should pay. The, the people that made these decisions, they should be held accountable for this. And they I won't be uh, because, you know, basically uh, we can't get Joe Biden out of office until 2024 if unless he takes himself out of the running. There's a lot of things that a lot of these people are just continuing to fail upward. A lot of these generals were doing what they need to do to get that next star, to get that next, you know, promotion or get that next spot on whatever board they ended up being on after they retired or when they retire or something like that. But it is, it is a horrible thing to see that the United States did something that was seemingly so reckless. But I do want to get into something that was more towards the end of your career, but it seemed like your life changed forever when you suffered these injuries because of a near fatal parachute accident. Okay. So you were doing a workout for a deployment and you had this accident. So take us through what exactly happened during this accident, you know, kind of what you had to do for recovery and 
really how that changed how you operated in life in general, but especially in your job as well. So the, yeah, so it it was definitely a personal hardship that I had, that I went through getting ready for a, another deployment. We were jumping and there was winds on the field. Um, Winds this way, winds that way. Uh, we we circled around for a little bit, and then the winds were within jumping within jumping range, right? So the the, the range was okay. We could jump. We did. Um, there was break in the trees at about 100 or 200 feet. What they saw afterwards, which is why at about 100 200 feet or so, there was a crosswind. And I think the the um, DZSO the, the the drop zone safety officer said it was about 31 or 32 knots, something along those lines. We had a big crosswind. My, my shoot and another guy's shoot became a little pendulum. He hit his head. I tried to do the PLF as uh, best as I could, which is a parachute landing fall, feet, knees together, et cetera. Um, and I uh, just smashed my pelvis up pretty good. So um, went to the hospital and they, there was a branch of an artery in my pelvis that had sheared loose and that was bleeding. So, um, yeah, had a couple surgeries, remained intubated, woke up the next morning in the ICU and my wife was there. I just gotten married six months prior. And so in my intubated stupor state, I was like, oh, shoot, something's probably pretty darn wrong if my wife is standing in the corner there. And then I tried to pull the tube out and I went, was back asleep. Anyways, fast forward. I was in the ICU for about a week or two then was transferred. I had just PCS or moved from Bragg to um, uh, Washington State, Fort Lewis. And we went there. I was in a hospital for like another week or excuse me, another month. Uh, my wife took care of me there, then stayed home for about six months or so uh, recovering. Um, my wife, like, so I, I think about this to this day, had I not been married six months earlier and our, our, us, I was only married because I was in the unit. Um, the way I was introduced to her was an amazing, uh, amazing story in itself, but had I not been married, I don't know what I would have done. I would have just probably, yeah, I don't know, hired somebody, et cetera, hired a nurse to stay at home with me because, um, she told me that I was the grumpiest person that she'd ever been around. And I don't remember <laughs> about half of it. <laughs> Uh, but you know, like imagine being married for six months and then, you know, you're like, you know, empty this urinal, help me up here. You know? So I, I, I walk around at about uh, 195 right now. I was about 140 pounds is how small I got because of just the atrophy and such. So, uh, they, they wanted to, so there, there's, there's the unit then there's the regular army. The regular army says, Hey, you're, you're done. You're going to be medically discharged. And I was, I think I was sitting at 16 or 17 years so far in. And for guys who have been in the military, if, you, if you're close to 20, or it, it's a goal, you want to get to 20 for many different reasons. So uh, I wanted to stay in. My, my, uh, the, the unit, uh, JSOC, the, the commanders were switching out and both of them were uh, good people and great guys to work for. And they said, hey, you can stay in if you want. And uh, I said, yes, absolutely. Um, one of the other gentlemen stayed in to keep, uh, he was going to retire and he stayed in and kept the slot just to kind of uh, keep it full so I could come and take it when I was uh, recovered. So for about six months, my job was essentially going to the gym, doing physical therapy and getting stronger again. And then I would go into the operating room for about an hour a day and uh, do some anesthesia work and keep my mind sharp as much as I could. Um, while just weaning off the narcotics that I was on for the first couple months. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was just a big, you know, I wanted to stay in, I wanted to stay in the military. I wanted to stay in the unit. I didn't want to, um, 
I would have stayed in the army just to be in the army, but I wanted to stay in the unit. That's, that's the mission that I like to do. That's the mission that I love. And I wanted to go back out there. So I deployed three more times after that injury, after that recovery. Um, it was, it was painful. Uh, not all, not all of it, but you know, imagine a 95 pound ruck on your back and you have to step up the step onto the back of a Chinook one leg while maybe carrying a litter with a person on it. Right. And uh, you have to be able to essentially lunge like that. And that's I mean, my, my pelvis was, you know, uh, pretty damaged. I had a couple surgeries on my right hip by that time. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a challenge, you know, and there was, you know, <laughs> there was one time I recall we were on the back of a Chinook getting, getting off and same thing. I had the, I had the ruck on and I squatted down to lift the guy up. And if you're anesthesia, you're on the, on the heavy side of the litter, essentially the chest side. And um, yeah, I was in the uh, lunge position trying to stand up and I just kind of like made, made the move and nothing happened. And I looked up at our radio guy and he knew exactly what, you know, what that uh, look, you know, and he basically grabbed my ruck and helped lift me up a little bit. But uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, now even, even today I'll walk like a penguin sometimes, you know, when things start hurting and if I've been chopping wood outside for too long or something, but um, yeah, so that was definitely a turning point um, in, in, uh, in, in, just kind of overcoming something and wanting to stay in. And uh, yeah, I, I think I would have stayed in for longer after the 20. That's was the goal just to stay in until I was done with it. Um, but uh, yeah, physically I was, I was, uh, it was time to get out. Well, and I know that's always a hard decision for a lot of folks. And at least you did have the ability. You had a track to basically get you to that 20 years to have that retirement, to have that, you know, feather in your cap. But during that yeah. time and because of the injuries you suffered and some of the th those things that happened, it really led you to be fairly introspective. Uh, and so I don't really know the timeline in terms of when you had your first son, but you were thinking internally about what lessons you would pass on to your son. And I believe you were starting to jot some of these things down before your first son arrived. Is that correct? It was yes. So it was after the after the injury, my first deployment after the injury. Uh, so in between then, it was a miracle that we got pregnant because um, you know you know where the pelvis is right and everything else that's there. And I had some really good doctors and such, and um, they were like, "All right, well, go ahead and just try and keep trying," you know. And so we pushed up our let's try to have a baby by you know a year just to see if uh, just to, just in case there was complications. Anyways, we got pregnant. Uh, she got pregnant. It was great. Um, deployed and, uh, yeah, it was just, you know, the missions were nightly and constant, some more dangerous than others, uh, the pain, etc. And I would just essentially write letters home to her. Not, I wouldn't send them all. It was just basically a journal of letters and stuff. And, uh, I would in there, I would make paragraphs and separate stuff to him. Um, Hey, you know, yeah, essentially, if I don't get to see you, here's some tangible lessons. Here's some things that you need to do. Some of them were, like I said, tangible. Do this, do that. Say this, say that. This is how you act in this situation. And others were more of a principles and values type of things. And I'd come home and those would go away, you know, go into the drawer and uh, deploy again, you know, three to eight months later and do the same thing over again. And, you know, we'd have another son, another son. So I started basically compiling those um, once we had our fourth child, third son. Um, this was we were already out of the army by this time. So he's, he's, he'll be four next next uh, next next week. So, yeah, this was about a year after I got out of the army. We had our final son and 
then I decided, you know, it's time to kind of gather everything that I've been working on. I wasn't working on it for a book at the time, but it just seemed like a good time to kind of gather all those ideas, put them into a format that can have an impact on these little guys. And initially it was just going to be for them. And I started drawing and I said, nope, I am not there anymore. And uh, kind of got an illustrator to help out. And then it just kind of took on a life of its own. And uh, it turned out that it could be something really special. So I just kind of kept working on it. Yeah. And all that basically led you to make this book, which you guys, if you're not watching this on YouTube, I'm holding the book in front of the camera like a good boy, but it will be in the show notes so you can check it out. But it's maintain eye contact while shaking hands, a message to boys on being a man. So I guess, first of all, we have the impetus behind where you kind of got the idea because you had all these lessons. You were thinking this is going to be good for our kids. And then if it's going to be good for our kids, it's probably good for for other kids. And you're targeting, tar targeting it at boys. And we're going to get into the lessons here in just a second. But I am kind of interested here at the beginning. Some people would do what you did and say, okay, these are the lessons I were going to give to my son, but that segments the population, right? That segments your target audience down. Some people might say, Hey, make it more broad because anytime you segment your target audience down, people wonder why isn't he making something for insert group here? That's not included. So, right. you know, what, what would you, or I guess, what about people that want a book like this for their daughters? And for you, you have three sons and one daughter, you know, why wouldn't you do something for everybody? Why make it just for boys? The, there's a, there's a war on masculinity, right? That's an oft used term, right? So there's, there's, there's society is fighting against men being men. It's masculinity. You and I know most of the listeners of this show know, actually it's all the listeners, right? That masculinity, it's not the problem. It's the twisted definition that's applied to it. So most notably the term toxic masculinity, which says that any display of masculinity is bad. And that term stigmatizes all males based on bad behaviors of some so now there's an entire generation of boys experiencing the, 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 the liability of being normal and that's bad to have masculine traits. And that's prevalent throughout society. That's politics, medicine, sports, and if left unattended, everybody is going to be uh, um, a casualty of this, right? And we will feel the impact forever. So something has to be done. There, there's, there's books out there. Um, there, there's a void of good and patriotic children's books out there, but there are so many other books out there that speak to all those groups, the insert names here. There are none that I could find uh, specifically for this age group, right? There, there are great books out there and I'm not trying to disparage any other books that are out there by any means, but there's some great books out there teaching values and uh, certain values and stuff. Right. Um, but, but the, the books that this one is combating books like I am jazz that encourages transgenderism or um, feminist baby boy board book and encourages kids to be feminists and, and cross dress and things like that. And so just as much as all the, the writers of those book wants, wants every parent to read that, I think I want every parent, I think it's great for every parent an adult to read this book essentially and pass on these values and morals to the boys because no one's speaking directly to boys. There's a lot of articles and magazines and stories and people talking like your podcast, like two fathers and two parents, like, Hey, the, you know, this is, this is how you raise a good man. And so I wanted something that the boys could actually sit down and look through and read themselves. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great as a picture book that the, the pictures weave a story It's great as a picture book for the young ones a read along for five to seven year olds and then a independent reader for the eight year olds and up. And uh, so far it's, it's gotten great reviews. 
One, well, it is a, a very well illustrated book. I, I I'm trying to pronounce the name right, but the illustrator was Witty Saputro. So yes. hopefully I got yeah. that right. But yeah, yes, it, it, it looks fantastic. It's done very very well. And the thing about it is, is the lessons are applicable to boys or or girls. But yes, mm-hmm. there's no one really talking to boys. We live in a culture that does not do rites of passage for boys that lead them into manhood. I'm talking about the you know the capital C culture as, as the West, we don't do that anymore. There's some religious sects that will do it. There's some random things here or there that do it, but the the church does a terrible job of it. You know, secularly, we don't even focus on it. So it's one of those hard deals, but the lessons in the book are stuff that we know as adult men, but even a lot of adult men don't check these boxes. So it's even better for uh, the young boys to hear it, but like clean up after yourself, you know, eat healthy, work before you play, have integrity, honor women and treat them well, keep your promises. But I do want to go specifically into some of the lessons because they're, they're not so subtle and that's good because you're, you're dealing with kids here and Mm -hmm. you don't want to cloak everything and all these different subtleties. But one of the first ones that you, you put out in the book is trust in God. And so I guess this is where I kind of want to get a little bit more into your personal faith, because if you're Jewish and you're a practicing Jew, your view of God is perhaps different than that of a Protestant. A Christian uh, or different than uh, a Catholic or different than a Muslim or different than a fill in the blank. So when you say that there, are you trying to keep it vague? Because I didn't really pull out that you were meaning the Jewish God or the whatever God, or, you know, this t-shirt, this bumper sticker, whatever the person wants to have in there. So when you say trust in God, take us into that a little bit more. Um, so there's, I guess there's a, there's maybe a two-part answer or a longer answer. There's the it's, it's not a secret in, in the preface of the book. I said I was raised Christian and um, and now I uh, follow Judaism because I'm uh, Jewish. Um, Judeo-Christian values are the cornerstone for the Western world. And the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, uh, we call it the Bible as well. It's called the Bible, the Torah, interchangeably. So we we have the same faith. We There's a, there's a lot of similarities and I'm having a... a great time exploring those differences and similarities between Christianity and Judaism. Um, I think it's on that same page where it says, trust and believe in God and keep your morals high. Um, it's, it's where the dad or me in the book, right? I'm packing up my gear to go uh, uh, de- deploy and I'm putting a Torah or a Bible into the, into the, the bag. So um, yes, it's, it's spe- specific in the sense of believe in God, as in I'm referring to the Judeo-Christian God. It's not... It's, it's somewhat vague in the sense that a Hindu, a Muslim, um, a Buddhist, anybody could read that book and God could be their God and what works for them. Um, as I said, I, I've had the opportunity to live all over the world and interact with almost every, every culture and religion. And there are good people. There are some really, really bad people in some religions that are really, you know, focus on some negativity, but it's not everybody. And there are some really good people out there. And so if if uh, um, the God that you pray to uh, should not matter, it should not matter what God you pray to. If you're a man, you're a man, and there are uh, certain ways that a man should behave. Okay. So uh, to unpack that a little bit further before we get into any of the other stuff there, um, when you're telling someone like to, to whatever God they pray to, well, certain gods have different ideas of morality because all the lessons that you taught here in this book, and they're all fantastic, they don't come from just any worldview. They come from Correct. specifically kind of a Judeo-Christian worldview and Christian ethic. So would that possibly exclude someone that has maybe a Hindu lifestyle or a Muslim lifestyle? Because the, the God that's described in the Quran is obviously very different and requires different things from its prophets and from its followers. So w- would that kind of, you know, muddy the waters a little bit, or I may maybe digging into this a little bit too far. 
Um, you know, I, I didn't put too much thought into into uh, trying to make this as milk toast as possible t- to encompass everybody. This book might not right. be for everybody. If if somebody doesn't agree that a man should respect a woman and hold doors open and protect her, um, then then this they, they will probably have problems with about two to three pages of this book. Right. Uh, and it's up to them if they want to read it or not, and maybe eschew that part. But no, that that's what I believe. Yes, the values and morals, I believe they do come from a higher power because then otherwise what it's just a matter of opinion. Murder is okay. Murder is not okay. Let's argue about it and see who kind of wins. But I think those values and morals, they do come from God. They do come from the Judeo-Christian God. And, and uh, yeah, that's what, that is what I base the book off of. Absolutely. Yeah. Essentially that there is a moral law, which, which we can differentiate between good and evil. We didn't just create it for ourselves. Now, now for you as, as a Jewish person, that's, you know, raising your family, Jewish and all those different things. One thing I am curious about, cause you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of Jewish friends in my area here in central Oklahoma, go figure. Um, but what do you think about Jesus? Because, you know, I kind of know what Muslims believe about Jesus. I, in Mm -hmm. general, know what Jews usually say when they talk about Jesus, but kind of where do you fall on your understanding of who Jesus is outside of him just being listed as a rabbi? Yeah. So, so me, me personally, Gabe Wander personally, I know the New Testament more than I know the Old Testament because of how I was raised. So um, I'm having a great time. Like I said earlier, um, exploring the the two religions and our rabbi is great. Um, he's a young guy. He used to be in the military. He's actually in the reserves right now and um, very approachable and stuff. And we have great conversations about it as do I with some of the other, um, I guess, uh, whatever the Jewish word for deacons are or the uh, gabbai, I think is what they call them, um, um, about, about these topics. As a whole, Judaism believes that yes, Jesus was a person and he existed and he did things. They don't believe that he was the Messiah. Um, me, what have you know? Where where am I in all this? I I I haven't quite I haven't quite delved in yet, and uh, I don't have an answer, I guess, to myself, right? So um, I know as, as as Christians, right? I'm I'm used to you pray whenever it's time to pray. You pray to God for this. You pray to God for that. You essentially have a relationship with God. Jews do the same thing, right? So a lot of my questions to these, you know, to some of these uh, elders and such is, what do I do for this? How do I do this? And um, comparing the two and uh, it's great. So um, I don't, personally, I don't dwell on that nuance of, you know, was Jesus the son of God? Um, Was he not? Um, I know that Jews, they do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was a person. He was not a, he was, you know, uh, he did some great things and he was a prophet, but it was not the Messiah. So that, that is what Jews believe. Yeah. Okay. So interesting thing about that as well. Um, have you ever read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis? I have not, no. Okay. So, so that might be one. He's, he's a guy that was an atheist for most of his life and then became a Christian, but he's an mm-hmm. early kind of 20th century English author. Uh, he talked about Mere mm-hmm. Christianity introduces the idea of the trilemma. So, uh, cause we can't categorically put Jesus in one category. So the trilemma is Jesus was one of three things. He was either a liar, a lunatic or Lord. That's it. 
So he was either lying about who he was and, and what he came to earth to do. He was a lunatic and actually believed it, or he is actually the Lord. And so that's the thing that I would just encourage you to do. And, you know, we certainly need to get back to talking about the book, but just to kind of take the, the long out route to come back here, that is something that you really should reckon with a little bit further because he has to be put in one of those three categories. And I can respect right. someone intellectually that says, oh, he's a liar or, oh, he was made a liar by his followers after he died. They made up the New Testament. They, they made up and forged all these documents, this, that, and the other thing. So that would be something that I would encourage you to really look at further because the thing about it is, is he either was resurrected on the third day after being killed on a Roman cross or he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so that is kind of the mainstay and the main breaking point between the old law and the new law. So you and I can probably talk a little bit more off air and kind of go into that a little bit further because you seem like you're on a truth journey. And if there's something I can do to assist that, I would absolutely love to. But another lesson that you talk about in the book, and this is the namesake for the book, which is maintain eye contact while shaking hands. And I got to tell you, that is such a huge thing for me. Uh, and it's it's very, very important because I can remember being a young kid, six, seven years old, and my dad telling me to go up to a man and say, hey, give that guy a good handshake. And I knew what that meant. That didn't mean just placing my hand inside his. It was to shake his hand, put a firm grip on it, not too firm, but firm enough mm -hmm. and look the guy in the eye and say hello. That's not something that I really see parents doing much of. And it's not really something that I guess comes natural to every single guy. So for you, why, why make that the namesake of the book? And why is that so important? So I may, um, well, one, it's, let's see, it's the namesake of the book and it's so important for, for a couple of reasons. And going back to the Judaism and Christianity thing really quickly, um, Judaism says, that if you do the action, then the feeling will come, um, as opposed to Christianity, uh, which would say something like, uh, it doesn't matter if you give the bum $5, if, you, if it's not in your heart, if you don't feel like giving the bum $5, the action of giving him $5 doesn't count. Judaism says, hey, you did the action, and so in the end, the bum has $5. So you do the mitzvah, you do the good deed, and, and the heart will follow. So Fast forward to the shaking hands and maintaining eye contact and a firm grip and three shakes, etc. Um, if you don't know how to be a man, if you're on the journey to being a man, then do the actions. Uh, do the actions and you will feel like a man. And then that's a good start. So if you don't know what it means to be a man, then do some manly action. So that's the tangible things in the book, right? Shake hands correctly. Open a door. Do this. Do that. Um, and then you will start... Uh, uh, internalizing and getting on that journey to actual, to actual manhood. So, um, and then go, going back to just everyday life, right? Like you said, you'll see, I, I see every day at work and just, uh, and around the community, people who are, you know, shaking hands with their kids or, or having their kids shake someone's hand and some do it great. And you're like, I love it. And then yeah. there's others that, that don't, and, and the parents try, you know, and the kids got his eye on the phone and everything. And, um, so yeah, no, I, I think that's just one of the, one of the core things about manhood that if you can't look somebody in the eye and shake their hand uh, firmly, then it's just, gosh, it's just so, so hopeless. Well, and it's, it's, it's a way of introducing yourself to somebody. And I have friends to this day, and, and I, I may ask you a question about it a little bit later that to this day, they're grown men with kids and they just have a dead fish handshake. And I'm like, 
we've talked about this, brother. Like, what what is the deal? I know you're capable. You're physically right. capable of squeezing my hand. What are you doing? And he's not doing it just to be a bug because I have friends like that too. But another lesson that comes out of the book that I absolutely loved was don't be a victim. Um, mm -hmm. because we live in this world where you are given plaudits, you are given a higher standing in, in culture if you're a victim of some kind. Whereas not that long ago, in the not too distant past, that was not something that we looked for. We looked for victors. We did, we right. looked for victors to protect victims. We didn't go on a search to find as many victims as possible. So why did you decide to focus in on that on the book? Um, when you have a lot of boys and they see if they see some of their friends or something or some some people in their life basically gaining from victimhood, whether it's on TV or their friends crying or somebody's whining or or whatever's going on in the news. If they catch a snippet of it, um, they they will take the easiest path. Human nature will take the easiest path to getting things, whether it's uh, as a kid or as an adult. And if the easiest path is victimhood, because that's what the what, that's what the media is showing these days, if the easiest path is, path is victimhood, then that's what they are going to start doing, um, whether it's crying for something or whining for something or so-and-so hurt me or this or that. Um, so that's one of, that's, that's something that's near and dear to me as well is, is yeah, it's, it's just, you we are all given the same opportunity. We are, we are lucky to be in America. That's our privilege. Um, and we have the same, we all have the equal opportunity and what you do with that is up to you. So the, I'm a firm believer in meritocracy. Uh, if you work hard, you will get more than the guy who doesn't work hard. Um, grades, money, uh, life, happiness. Um, you have to work at everything. You have to work at your happiness. You have to work at friendship. You have to work at your tribe. You have to work at your grades and find, if you're not good at something great, find something else that, that you're good at, but sitting back on your laurels and, and, uh, asking for something is just not the way to go. And I don't want to see my kids fall into that. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that kind of comes off of that is the whole sheepdog mindset, which we talk about on this podcast quite often, you know, the wolf, the sheep and the sheepdog. Right. And I think it's amazing to introduce that. And we saw that in the movie American Sniper, where it was kind of shown there that the father was showing mm -hmm. the son, like, you know, kind of what happens explaining to him the Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman concept of being a sheepdog and all those different things. But why introduce that in your book as well? Because I think I keep asking you questions that I pretty much know the answer to, oh, yeah. but I, I, I just want to tee you up to talk about that. So why'd you add the sheepdog concept into the book? Um, we, let's see. So this, this is something that I talk to my boys about all the time. Um, I have a nine, five and three year old, and I talk to the girl about it to the seven year old. And I talk to my eldest daughter about it too. Um, and it's your responsibility. You have a responsibility as a male to be a protector. Um, it's innate. You can't change it. Males are protectors and providers, and you can push it down and try to be as feminine as possible. Um, but if you are going to fully actualize what it means to be a male is to be a protector and be a provider, stand for, uh, stand for truth, fight evil. Um, and so I want them to know that that is normal. Um, embrace that and cultivate that. And you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to be a protector. Don't just don't just uh, don't just stand by and watch. If even if it's to your own detriment, of course, tactically sound and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But but it's your responsibility. And and if if we don't have men, or young boys growing up to be men who are willing to do that and step into the breach and, and stand between good and evil, then then again we're 
going to be a dystopian society, as you know, C.S. Lewis mentions in one of his other books. Yeah, well, and the thing that's interesting about that as well is the downstream effects of what happens with with someone that doesn't focus on being a sheepdog is that we do have people that get taken advantage of. And the people are always looking around with where are the sheepdogs? Well, sheepdogs don't just do that for a living. There are sheepdogs that do that for a living. They're in the military, law enforcement officer, officers, other first responders. But there are instances where they're not nearby and somebody needs to intercede. And for these young men, if, if they see that modeled, that's very important because they're going to see their dad be courageous. They're, they're going to see their dad, you know, work with concealed carry or knife fighting. They're going to see their dad working on his martial skills, those types of things. And that's something that they can model as they continue to grow up. But I, I don't want to just com- completely pat yeah. you on the back here. There was one lesson in there that I did want to push back on just a little bit, but in a friendly way. So the, in general, the, the idea was you can do anything that you want to. And that's been mm-hmm. a common refrain for, for parents for, I don't know how long it wasn't just my generation. It was all generations. You can be anything you want to be. I think that was especially for millennials and now into Gen Z. And the reality is, is I think that that has caused some major issues for kids because there's the, there's the legitimate examples that people always come up with where, which is like, Hey, I'm five, nine, 195 pounds. There's no one that looks like me in the NBA, right? So I was not going to do work as hard as I could. And then all of a sudden end up in the NBA. It wasn't in the cards for me, but there are a lot of things that you can control, but I guess I have issues with people putting no parameters on saying you can do anything you want, son, because for my kid, I'm going to tell them there is beauty in diminishment of, of your options because like an artist is like, I don't want to be, you know, controlled or anything like that. The moment you pick a canvas, you are now stuck on that size of canvas. There's only so much you can do with that canvas. There's only so many sounds you can make with the drum set, that type of thing. So uh, I know that I'm putting a lot more effort, a lot more philosophical effort into this than maybe a seven-year-old is going to pick up on. But do you see any issues with maybe telling a kid, yeah, you can do whatever you want when the reality is they can't? So I do. And I actually agree with you, which is why I'm going to say that I think the word in the book is you can have anything you want as opposed to be anything you want. Uh, okay. I'm I'm, you you sure. keep going. I'm going I'm to look it yeah. up. But let me, so let me. so um, my... Yeah, I have a book behind me. I should probably look it up too. Um, so uh, you're not allowed to <laughs> do that. My show, I'm allowed to do it. Right, okay? right. So it's going to change my answer if it actually does say B. But um, it, yes, I completely agree with you. A five foot eight Jewish kid is not going to be in the NBA. I'm never going to be a fast runner. My nine year old is never going to be a marathon runner based on how I see him run. Um, but you can have anything you want if you put your mind to it. Uh, is is uh, so I completely agree with you that yes there are there are some parameters obviously there are some skills that we were given there are some skills and talents that everybody was given and not everybody can be anything that they want I agree with you all right I did find the section so guys Uh-oh. you know here I am we're we're going right into it here so I'm going to just read it as it's written uh, I don't have a page number here but here we go things are rarely fair and you're not owed a thing nothing in life comes easy or free but you can achieve anything you want son, if you're the best man you can be. So I appreciate that. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. I, I kind of, as I read it, that's kind of what I got from it, but I'm glad we're kind of on the same page there because with my yeah. son, that's a year and a half old and, uh, you know, the son on the way, that's, that's something that I'm, I'm going to be very, very specific with them about. It's like, Hey son, there's certain things that will be in the cards for you. Some things won't be in the cards. Like I wish that I was six foot eight and 275 pounds that ran a four, four forty. That would be amazing. But that's just not the, the hand that I was dealt. You have to play the hand that you were dealt. But another thing, and you've talked about this a little bit, there's another thing in the book that you talk about, which is that it's a privilege to live in America. That's one yeah. thing that I feel like even 
even patriotic parents forget to bestow in their children. You know, they don't take that 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 chance on on uh, or that opportunity on Veterans Day or on Independence Day or on any of these other holidays to say, do you understand how amazing this is that we live in this country? Do you understand how hard it is to live other places? It doesn't mean that they're less than we are, but it's just different. They're not as as open as we can be here. But why why spend so much time? Because obviously you're you're a veteran, so you would think that would be in there. But why do parents not focus on teaching their kids about how much of a privilege it actually is to live here? They haven't been other places. They, um, I grew up all over the world and there are some great places over there. And then in my adult years, I traveled all over the world in the military. And there's no better way to cement the greatness of America in your mind than deploying around the world and seeing the best that every country has to offer. And it still pales in comparison to the US. There are some, like I said, some great places out there and there's but I would, I would never give up America on its worst day for any other place on its best day. Um, and, and that's something that I have tried to impart to my kids from the very beginning. There's, and, and anybody can do it really. I mean, even if you're not near a military base, there's always something. I mean, just look at, look at Andy, there's gonna be a veteran cemetery nearby. Like I took the kids on um, uh, Memorial Day and we helped them plant flags in the, or, or place flags at the, um, at the uh, veteran graves or on July 4th, and we just basically talk about the greatness of America, basically. Um, and so I think that's just really, really important because without the without passing on that patriotism, without passing on that love for country, um, then, then this country is going to no longer exist as the generations grow and grow. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah. Right well, now, I- there's... Yeah, I'm sorry. No, Gabe, I was just going to say the the thing that's important for parents to understand as well is it doesn't mean you just have to, you know, basically whitewash history as you present America to your children. I think when they're of age where they can understand good and evil a little bit better and those types of things, talk about you know, slavery, talk about the internment of the Japanese during the wars, talk about, talk about the My Lai massacre, talk about all these different things. And again, those are uh, at different levels of age appropriateness for sure. But it's just like, you're not describing it as this perfect entity, but it's kind of like, I forget the quote exactly, but it's like, uh, I think it was Winston Churchill. It's like, uh, capitalism is the worst, uh, financial, uh, program except for all the others, right? It was, it's kind of that idea to where it's like America is the worst country in the world that we've ever seen, except for all the other countries, right? It's one of those things where you can talk about America warts and all and still see her as a net positive. Uh, but the last thing I want to talk about, and there are way more lessons in the book. Again, guys, you got to go in the show notes and pick up a copy for yourself, for your sons as well is to just embrace your masculinity. But here's the thing, Gabe, I've been reliably informed that masculinity is toxic no matter what. Yeah. Right. And so why in the world would we want to give our young boys this idea that masculinity is something that they should embrace? Yeah. So contrary to what some in our society would have us believe, boys are our future, right? They're going to become the brave men who will stand between good and evil, be great leaders, better our country, become fathers. So men have unique impulses and traits, and we need to encourage boys to harness that innate aggression and ambition and use it for good. And surround them with the fringe idea that it's okay to be masculine, right? So like I said earlier, good men or weak men don't stop evil, good men do. And we need to create, or we need to um, encourage those boys, our boys to become good men. So then those good men can become good fathers and we can keep passing this on, you know? So like we, we as men, we bring our talents to work. We bring our talents to the gym and any other extracurricular activities that we do, we need to we need to intentionally bring those talents as a father. And because the the conception of a child is the fun part, intentionally 
uh, showing up and choosing to be a father every day, that's the hard part. And so that's, that's what we need to try to do. And that's what I think most of the listeners on here are trying to do and you and I, and um, I just would like to encourage everybody to, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I tell myself literally every day when I'm driving home from work or whenever I'm driving home is, is okay, I'm going to walk in and these are the tangible things I'm going to do. I'm going to put my stuff down. I'm going to kiss my wife. I'm going to say hi to the kids. Each one gets a little pat or whatever they need. And um, gosh, it's still a challenge. You walk in the door and I just want to start, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, you know, but it's just, it's, thinking about it and making that effort and trying to do it and being a little bit better today than you were yesterday. We all, everyone talks about it in the gym, right? Be 1% better. It's a, but if you can do that as a father as well, gosh, that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. So you're a published author. You're a big deal now, Gabe. So what's in the future? Do we have some more kids books coming or is this a one and done? No, there's uh there's, there's uh there's a follow-up to this one that um, it's just, it's just in the infancy stages. Um, it's uh, it'll be something along the lines of, you know, dad taught all this to the boys. Now dad's actually gone and the boys have to sort of use the lessons that they learned to sort of come o- overcome some obstacles that, you know, basically step up and be the man of the house and uh, et cetera, you know? Um, and then, you know, as my little uh, seven-year-old, when are you going to write a book about how to be a girl? So um, <laughs> that's that's probably more, you know, uh, if it comes from a father's perspective versus a mother's perspective or something along those lines. So yeah, it'll, it'll be something. Well, you certainly have an audience here whenever that day comes where you can come and talk about whatever the new work is. But I know you listen to this show, so you knew that this was coming, but I didn't give you the uh, the questions to prepare. But at the end of my interviews with certain guests, I like to do a segment called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said? I'm going to fill in the blank. And then you've got 30 seconds tops to give me your response. And this could be about a big subject. It could be about a funny subject, any number of things. But that's it, 30 seconds. I will cut you off. I will be rude about it. So- are you up for it? Okay. Yes. Let's, let's do it. Let's do let's, it. Let's make this happen. All right. The let's, first one here, see. what would you say to someone that said, I just don't have the time or capacity to invest in my relationship with my kids? I would say that you don't have the option. You made the kid. That's your time. You have to do it. There's no, there's uh, yeah, that's number one. You have to. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, why would you encourage boys to act like men? They may not even know what their gender is yet. Men and women have been cooperating socially and biologically since the beginning of time. And it's ludicrous to think that some, this generation of woke activists have somehow found a better way. Uh, The Bible talks about men and women. The Torah talks about the wonderful differences and unique responsibilities uh, and roles between men and women. And uh, yes, there are men and there are women, period. How dare you say something so bigoted on my show? How dare you? All right, we're going to get into the next one. Guys, for anyone listening, you should see the smile on my face. Tons of sarcasm there, dripping with sarcasm. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, spec ops fighters have a death wish? I think spec ops fighters have a calling and that is what they are good at. If that is what they are good at, if that is what they're calling, then by all means, they need to go in there and do the best that they can with their calling, get trained as best as they can and use those traits. Those are masculine traits. Use those masculine traits for good for themselves, for their community, for the country. So no, I don't think it's a death wish. I think it's them uh, living up to their potential. 
All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said the United States' time of being the dominant world power will soon be at an end? I would punch that commie. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No. uh, uh, Yeah, like we said a little bit earlier, this is the best country on on earth. It was founded with righteous principles. And those, those principles and that founding document is what makes this country great and the American spirit uh, that, that uh, I'd be uh, hard to describe in 30 seconds, but the American spirit of never quitting and freedom and just, you know, it doesn't matter who the president is and what really bad thing policies they put in place. It'll all, they can always point to something and say, look how great my policies were because the Americans will persevere regardless. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a great place because of its people. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I have a buddy with a limp handshake? (laughs) Buy them this book. And (laughs) (laughs) no, um, yeah, no, uh, just explain to them perhaps if they are, if, if they are physically able to have a strong handshake, explain to them what it means and what it says about them and what it says to the people around them. If that is the type of handshake that they have. All right. Just a few more left. You're doing great. What would you say to someone that said masculinity is dangerous? Mm, No, we, the lack of masculinity is dangerous. It's, it's not that masculinity is dangerous. Uh, Masculinity can't be changed, right? We are men we have masculine traits and then we use our masculine traits for good or bad. If someone uses their masculine traits for evil, that person is an evil person. So masculinity is not good or bad. We are masculine men and we have the same traits as a bad person, but we are able to control it. We can be a gentleman and we can use our masculine traits as tools for good. So no, I say absolutely not. Yeah. If you think masculinity is dangerous, just, uh, see what not having masculinity around does for people. So, all right, a couple more here. What would you say to someone that said, go Navy beat army? (laughs) Sorry. My father-in-law was, uh, was, uh, Navy for 24 years. And so I can't be, can't be too rough on the Navy because I appreciate him for introducing me to his daughter, but, um, no one, no one ever writes. So to quote a meme, no, no little kid ever said, let's go outside and play Navy. So they all go outside and play Army. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually true. I have friends both in the Navy and the Army. So that question was for you. But last question yeah. of the day here, Gabe, what would you say to someone that said, it doesn't matter what I teach my kids, they get to make their own decisions? No, absolutely not. You are wrong. I would say that my four-year-old wants to be a dinosaur half the time. And if I let him be a dinosaur and decided <laughs> that's what he wanted to be, right, I'm going to change his skin. No, your responsibility is to raise your kid. And yeah, you know, in the U.S. we say 18 is of the legal age, but it's different for every kid, right? Yes, you still have a responsibility even beyond, you know, I still go to my father for some advice and I hope that my kids would come to me for some advice when they get older. But no, you have a responsibility from the very beginning. And while their brains are still developing, no, they can't decide what's what they're going to have for breakfast or dinner. Um, I think my nine-year-old could probably survive for about a week and then that's it, right? So no, they had they, they can't decide what their gender is or what they you know what right and wrong is um, as a young age. Absolutely not. And it's up to men like us to stand in the breach and make sure that they know that and to stand up for the kids whose parents won't tell them that. But Gabe, we've talked about a lot of stuff Absolutely. here. I appreciate you letting us go into some of your background and into your book. But that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? 
Um, no, sir. I think we covered it all. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. And I love listening to uh, what you're doing, man. All right, Gabe Wander, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Gabe Wander. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the two links I've got for you today, I got a link to the D'Angelo Publications website where you can buy, maintain eye contact while shaking hands. And I've also got a link to Gabe's website so you can check out more stuff from him. All right. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event, or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>